this man's legal name is Flavor Flav. Counselor, I'll allow it. Yeah, boy! We're, we're, we're surrounded by super powerful forces. Once they get you in their jails, they can figure out ways of keeping for a long time, Caesar. The workers don't have the vote. It can only be attributable to human error. The new immigrants in many places, many of them are not citizens. Most of them don't speak the language. You are now tuned into Fear of a Border Planet. Okay, folks, here we're back. What's up? I get it. Coming to you live and direct. Well, by the time you hear this, we won't be live anymore, but... Yeah, there's nothing live you can say about this podcast. Yeah, that's true. This is evergreen, guys. I hope we're speaking to you years in the future. This is just as relevant as it is today. We're recording in December 2023. Good yeah. to be back with you guys. Got one last episode recorded before the holidays and the new year come to bring us into 2024. And we're going to have definitely going to have more good stuff coming at you in 2024. Yes. I think we'll uh, start it off talking about the latest news with one of our favorite rappers, 21 Savage, who just got his green card. But we'll get into that in a future episode. And who are we again for uh, our first time or returning listeners who just forgot who we are? Uh, for all our wonderful fan base, this is Nelson the Mayan, El Comandante de Cuscatlan, Radio Ramon, the Cannabis Kami, coming to you from the one and only Detroit, Michigan. Thank you. Who's next? And this is Ramos. For the new listeners, I never have a nickname ready to go. One that comes to mind is Mr. Doing Too Much. I just got off a flight, uh, just got off of work, hopped onto the podcast, <laughs> and there was this guy in my college who uh, was kind of like a you know amateur videographer, filmmaker, called himself Mr. Doing Too Much. Um, so I'm about to get a cease and desist letter. Right you be doing too much. On a screenshot while we FaceTime, you be doing too much. And of course, as always, the white wizard approaches. I'm still here. White wizard, Carrie. It's December now. The level of pastiness is just horrifying. You know, I have to accept my own caucasity <laughs> and use it as a power. Obviously, it's Use a it fucking power. <laughs> hey, before we dive into it, there is a topic that we never covered. <laughs> Ramis met Flava Flav. Yes, we got to do the little <laughs> rewind sound back to back to this. Yeah, I mean, this is was that that was that this, this summer? Really news? You we, know, I me, can't believe we never covered this. Flav, we're just hanging out like we do, so you know. <laughs> It's not that I just met him. I, I meet him all the time. Uh, so I won't get oh, okay. flex. <laughs> no, but this was, I think I was leaving LA this summer. Um, was there for a wedding. And uh, I was just waiting at my gate on a spirit flight from LAX back to Detroit. And there was Flavor Flav just standing there. 
everybody just walking right <laughs> past him. And I did a double take and I was like, where's the line to go talk to this guy? And there wasn't one. So I just walked up to him and said, hey, I'm a big fan. Uh, can I get a picture? And I asked him, at, he was in the middle of uh, opening uh, like a Reese's individual peanut butter cup. And so he was like, yeah, yeah, get in. <laughs> and I, I, I was trying to wait for him to finish eating his Reese's peanut butter cup. He was like halfway through it. And I was like, you want me to wait? He was like, no, no, no let's do it. So I just, I got a picture with him and then I awkwardly sat in the same gate as him for the next 45 minutes before we both got on the same flight. Apparently he lives in Detroit or like, yeah, apparently he's like Detroit based now because of his girlfriend. Huh. Well, that's just a blessing. That's, that was a sign that we're on the right track because as people who haven't listened to every single one of our episodes might not know our title fear of a border planet is a homage to fear of a black planet, a canonical album by public enemy consisting of Mr. Chuck D and Mr. Flavor Flav. Did I say flavor Flav? Flavor. <laughs> That's kind of offense. <laughs> kind of offense. Mr. Flavor Flav. Mr. Flavor. Next time I see call him, him as an expert witness. Next time I see him, I'll, I'll have him record a little intro for the, for the podcast. Ooh, that would be fun. Please do. Hit me! So what are we talking about today? Well, we are talking about Palestine behind borders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we have a long list mm-hmm. of topics we want to get to, but we pulled this topic up to the front of the line uh, because of, you know, the urgency of, of discussing it on the podcast and, um, you know, the, the fact that Palestine is kind of consuming at least a part of everybody's mind and hearts right now. That's right. I'm really glad we're doing this. And when we say Palestine behind borders, what we're going to try to bring to you is the perspective of people who in the United States have been involved in immigrant rights and immigration law and take that lens to the issue of the Palestinian people and and especially what they're going through right now and the issue of borders and how Israel has used and abused its borders to push the Palestinian people further and further out of their homeland. So I'm really excited to get into it. Uh, Before we dive right in, I do just want to note, if you are new to the podcast, welcome. If you are not new, welcome back. Uh, If you are trying to find us, you can go on to anywhere you get your podcasts, such as Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and search Fear of a Border Planet. You can search Twitter and Instagram for at Border Planet Pod. You can also find our website, which is borderplanetpod.wordpress.com. Tell your friends, even if they're not hip-hop nerds, but they're law or immigration nerds, or even if they're not law or immigration nerds, but they're hip-hop nerds. Trust me, you'll dig it. So, Ramos, why don't you kick us off? So the reason we wanted to call this podcast episode Palestine Behind Borders is, you know, obviously we're a podcast about borders. Um, and this isn't just an attempt to fit Palestine within the framework of our of our podcast. We think um, really interrogating Palestine's borders is an important lens, an important way to understand 
uh, you know, the, the last hundred years of, of, uh, of settler colonialism and occupation uh, in, in Palestine. And so, you know, when we're, when we're saying Palestine behind borders, we're, we're talking about the lived experience of Palestinians behind uh, an increasingly securitized, uh, often physical border, effectively behind mm-hmm. bars. Um, you know, uh, Gaza is known by many as the world's largest open air prison. Uh, and so, you know, we wanted That's to right. not only highlight uh, the way borders have been used and abused to fulfill kind of this project of, of settler colonialism, but how it kind of comes to define everyday life in Gaza and in the West Bank. You know, I, I was debating whether or not to, to do the whole history, but I think not only would that make this podcast 10 times longer than, than it is supposed to be, um, but I don't think I would be able to do that justice no matter how many books i read and how much time i spend preparing for the podcast and so let's not sell rama short either i mean you are a legal expert and you are have been working with arab americans in the united states for many many years you have some personal experience uh in that experience so i I just want to highlight that you're not just talking out your ass you're a really (laughs) smart dude and our listeners should listen to you well, so with what little I do have to offer, I'll, I'll, what I can what I can say now, and what I you know the, the the foundation I'll set is that I want everybody to you know who's listening to just Google Palestine borders over time, and what you will probably find is uh, you know a, a picture with four maybe five panels that show uh, Palestine's borders uh, at pretty significant points in its recent history back in the you know the british mandate times um after the the first world war um when uh when the the british government had uh, a control over the land uh into the early to mid 1900s with the balfour declaration which kind of gave the uk's stamp of approval for a uh, the state of israel or a jewish state to be created in uh, what was then uh, historic Palestine, you'll see Palestine's borders slowly and then quickly and more quickly and more quickly shrinking as you hit 1947 when um, the British mandate expired and uh, Israeli state came to be. Uh, you'll see 1967 borders getting smaller after a war between Israel and, and its neighboring Arab states. You'll see over the decades that come after smaller and smaller borders on the the kind of western tip of uh, of what was then Palestine and is, is still Palestine in, in the form of, of, of the Gaza Strip of Gaza. You'll see on the east side of what was then Palestine um, and, uh, you know, is now the considered the West Bank of, of Palestine. You'll see it in recent years becoming kind of really like a, uh, not really a congruent, cohesive area, uh, but really peppered with what are known as Israeli settlements, just civilians. Right coming in uh, under the kind of protection and encouragement of the Israeli government and essentially taking over the land, really just on the ground settler colonialism, you know, sanctioned and sometimes encouraged by the, by the Israeli government. And so what we have here is ever-changing borders that really just expose the project of 
settler colonialism and the kind of the the status of occupation in Palestine, where the what's now the Israeli government is getting more and more close to its goal of taking over uh, the entirety of the land, uh, which was once entirely uh, Palestine. And and you have what's emerging as like a couple of different conceptions of the border, you know, in the Gaza Strip, like I said before, world's largest open air prison, really strong borders, a land, sea and air blockade. There's really no way in or out by, by sea or air. Uh, you have to take one of maybe three, I think, land crossings, one of which goes into Egypt. Right. Gazans can't leave. And there's like two million of them. Right. And, and so we're seeing kind of a, a tightening, tightening border around Gaza. And at the same time, you're seeing a weakening, weakening border around the West Bank with the influx mm -hmm. of violent extremist settlers taking over that land uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And both of those projects are to the benefit of the Israeli government, right? They want strong borders in Gaza to uh, fulfill the goals of their occupation and their blockade there. And they want weak borders around the West Bank to fulfill their goal of settler colonialism. That's wild. I never thought of that juxtaposition before. The the use of both strong yeah. borders on one side of Israel and weak borders on the other side of Israel to accomplish the same mission of oppressing yeah. a people. Settler colonialism. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a crazy visual, like like mm -hmm. Robinson was saying, with just the maps alone, if you look at the maps over time and how they change, like it's becomes pretty clear who is really the dominant force in the situation and who's inflicting their will on uh, who. Yeah, and you know, in the kind of the American political conversation, we always hear talk about strengthening our borders, especially our, our border with Mexico. Um, and uh, that kind of gives the impression that uh, the kind of the, you know, the goal of borders is, is strength. Mm. You know, you think back to old school city states with their physical uh, moats or their uh, kind of barriers, fortresses, and, and that's kind of the conception of borders that's put forth in the American conversation. But borders are really about power. And as Harsha Walia in Border and Rule, really great book, um, really just kind of laid to bear is that, you know, if you have power, you can strengthen borders when it benefits mm -hmm. you, and you can poke holes through whatever borders you want when it benefits you, especially, you know, as we see through kind of the international labor exploitation um, that we see happening around the world carried out mostly by powerful nations like the U.S. in less powerful nations right. uh, like Bangladesh. Um, and so really, you know, borders are fluid and they, they come to the aid of whoever has enough power to channel them towards being stronger or weaker whenever they need. Right. And I think it's especially apparent how the border is only flexible for certain people because in the West Bank, borders super flexible for like Israeli settlers who want to come in and, you know, start bulldozing neighborhoods to build. Uh, new mm -hmm. settlements, but for Palestinians that would like to come into Israel from the West Bank, totally, they're not going to find that border too flexible. Totally. Right. Totally. 
So that's a good overview of the use and abuse of borders against the Palestinians relevant to us as border observers here in the United States. Another Palestinian topic relevant to us immigrant rights observers here in the United States is the status and statelessness of Palestinian refugees, those who have been pushed from their homelands. And I'm, the precipitous event of this was 1947, what's become known as the Nakba, the catastrophe that is the initial once what Ramos referred to mandatory Palestine became the, the Jewish state of Israel, something like 400 or 500 Palestinian villages were completely depopulated and destroyed in the Nakba as Israel expanded into all this territory that used to be Palestine. What that created was the largest long-standing refugee population on the planet. And to this day, there's, by some estimates, more than 5 million, nearly 6 million registered Palestinian refugees living across the Middle East. I mean, when someone is pushed from their homeland, arguably they and their descendants will always be considered refugees. But in the Palestinian case, part of why their status as refugees is still so palpable is because many of them have not been granted any sort of status by the nations that they now live in. Not only those who were living in Palestine at the time of the Nakba or at the time of 1967 when even more were expelled or in expulsion since then, but even their children and their grandchildren who were born in those countries like Egypt, like Lebanon, like Turkey, like Iraq, who have be these countries that have become homes for generations of displaced Palestinians, still, even people born in the 21st century are being born without citizenship of those countries because those countries do not have birthright citizenship. Those countries do not recognize Palestinian descendants as citizens of their own country. The one notable exception to that is Jordan, where in Jordan, many Palestinian refugees and their descendants have gotten Jordanian citizenship. Nonetheless, Many Palestinian refugees in Jordan are still living in massive refugee camps that were set up 50, 60, 70 years ago as temporary shelters and have become permanent establishments. There's millions of Palestinian refugees still living in refugee camps throughout the region. One of the things that's made the, the issue of statelessness so persistent is there's this misconception among some states and some nations in the region that if they grant Palestinian citizenship, it will impede their right to return. Basically, that say you're a Palestinian refugee in Egypt, if Egypt is saying, well, if I grant you citizenship, then I ruin the chances that you could ever go back to Palestine and kind of reclaim your lost land there, which kind of isn't true. I mean, especially just doesn't feel true because Israel has never granted any right to return. If you're a Palestinian who was born outside of Gaza or outside the uh, uh, the West Bank, it's hard to even get into those parts, let alone get back to the land that was taken. So 
unfortunately, this this line of, oh, we can't grant them citizenship in our countries because it'll undermine the right to return has just worked to perpetuate this really delicate statelessness that exists for many Palestinians in many countries that they've gone to. Also notable is that when most Palestinians were displaced in the Nakba of 47, that was before the United Nations had even kind of set up the modern infrastructure of refugees, something we talked about a lot on episode three, Forgotten Refugees Plus the Fujis. Go check it out. So we talked on that episode about how in 1952, the United Nations had this convention set up the definition of a refugee that persists to this day. That didn't exist when millions of Palestinians were forced from their home. So instead, a different UN agency called UNRWA, the United Nations. Oh, shit. What does it stand for? Fuck. I'll edit this part out. United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, rolls off the tongue, or UNRWA, was set up before UNHCR, the main UN refugee organization, to try to serve the needs of these Palestinian refugees. But, you know, because they their situation is so different and their funding, the funding of UNRWA is also different from the funding of UNHCR, there's been shortfalls in resources, and there's been a lot of Palestinians who've fallen through the cracks, fallen into statelessness. And imagine you are an LGBTQ Palestinian born in a country like Lebanon. And not only do you not have Lebanese citizenship, but you're also persecuted there, but you are stateless, and it's hard to go anywhere else because you don't have a passport. you It's hard to get recognized as a refugee, even by the United Nations, because they rec- recognize you as a Palestinian who needs support within the region. It's just, it's created a lot of confusion. I mean, if it sounds confusing, it's been confusing for these agencies and for countries all over the world for decades, which has just worked to further push Palestinian refugees to the margins relative to refugees worldwide. The Palestinian situation is dire and it highlights the serious shortfalls of our international system uh, and of our system of refugee resettlement in the U.S. And with that, I'm going to pass it off to Nelson, who's going to talk more about United States policy towards Palestine and Palestinians and Palestinian refugees and some of the fucked up things that our government has done to shaft Palestinians even further. Oh yes, we could make a long, very long list that would probably last us all night, sadly. Um, But I think, you know, it's worth reminding the listeners that, you know, any injustice that you hear about Israel inflicting on Palestinians. Um, The state of Israel is like politically backed and funded by the United States, by the United States military since its founding um, as a state. So keep in mind that pretty much any abuse, um, leveled towards Palestine by the state of Israel 
is coming with a big old cosine and um, supply of weapons and training and funding by the good old U.S. of A. You know, sort of officially speaking, that is was kind of just the policy for a long time since um, Israel was founded in uh, 48 to just um, basically allow them to do whatever they were going to do to the Palestinians and to continue to supply them, the state with weapons, as it continued to expand its borders further isolate and segregate Palestinians into this apartheid state that they now currently run. But sort of official recognition of Palestinians even as, like, not even really fully a people, but sort of the most basic forms of recognition start around, like, 1983 and 84 when the Reagan administration wouldn't even officially recognize um the Palestinian uh, Liberation Organization, the PLO, which was one of the main sort of political forces yep. that you know existed for Palestinians, and so those secret mm-hmm. talks began around 1983, 84. Uh, the administration wouldn't even admit that there were talks taking place, but it was the first time that the U.S. policy kind of officially even recognized Palestinians, and that was that took about 40 years. And even as they continued to do this, these negotiations, they also continued to further support Israel and its apartheid as the years went on. U.S. Congress codified policy prohibiting negotiations with the PLO in 85. The first Palestinian uprising happens in 87 after an Israeli military truck strikes and kills Palestinian day laborers. And as a result, the PLO gets labeled a terrorist organization. Mm. The United States starts prohibiting any of their funds that go into the United Nations to um, support Palestine as a, as a member state. 1990, they start excluding officials and spokespersons of the PLO uh, as engaging in terrorism and therefore make them eligible to be excluded. Yeah, that's the Immigration Act of 1990, which I had heard of before for other reasons, but which I didn't realize had this provision that basically excluded from the United States anyone associated with the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Mm-hmm. And so even as you know, negotiations are supposedly you know, happening in order to give any kind of recognition to Palestine, the very next moment they turn around and just drop law like that. In 1993, the Oslo Accords began. That was sort of a launch of negotiations between Israel and the PLO. The PLO was even able to open a representative office in Washington. As these negotiations are happening, there's also a series of federal cases. You know, evidence came to light that U.S. immigration policy, surprisingly enough, U.S. immigration enforcement was using secret evidence to deport and deny immigration benefits to mainly Arabs and specifically mainly Palestinians because of their political associations and advocacy. So as the U.S. is supposedly supporting these negotiations, it's also using um, secret evidence, whatever the secret evidence is. I'm sure it's very substantial. I think this still goes on to this day with both Oh, agreed. Uh, deportation proceedings, immigration proceedings, and also criminal proceedings, where it's basically like, 
we are denying you a benefit or convicting you because you materially supported a terrorist organization. And the person is like, well, where's the proof of that? And they're like, the proof of that is confidential because it could threaten national security if we gave you the proof of it. It's just like, okay, so you're saying that I support terrorism and you're refusing to give me the evidence that I support terrorism because of terrorism. Yeah, always the go-to. Yep. Terrorism, terrorism, terrorism. That's the, the, a nice trick. When it's basically just political advocacy uh, that has yeah. coincided with, you know, some periods of violence in the region. Yeah, or any indication of leaning the wrong way, quote-unquote. You know, right. is more than enough evidence. Uh, that's the secret evidence that they want. Uh, you disagree with our official policy, and so we reserve the right to kick you out of the country. And it's the same thing we're seeing today, where it's like, oh, you say free Palestine? You must be a Hamas sympathizer. You must support the genocide of Jews. Like, these absurd extrapolations of people's reasonable political positions that we hear a lot about these days in terms of suppression of speech on college campuses and stuff, but can also take place in the administrative halls of embassies, immigration courts, criminal courts, etc. Mm-hmm. Many a visa revoked, mm-hmm. many a benefit denied all on you know this basis of oh you support a terrorist organization because you think that genocide of palestinians is bad right and you know these are the free speech advocates supposedly right right anti-israeli and anti-us sentiment is high enough to the point where hamas wins the elections in 2006 and the palestinian legislative council race sort of takes over from the PLO and that's how Hamas up there in the first place you know people want to kind of blame radical Islamic terrorism or when it comes to Hamas when really you know it's the continued just legacy of neocolonialism that pushes people so far to, to accept a group like Hamas in the first place not to mention the fact that um, there's evidence Documents that have come out since that have kind of shown that it, the state of Israel, you know, with U.S. backing, of course, wanted to kind of tangentially support Hamas in those elections and like trying to push them towards the forefront mm-hmm. so that instead of having like a more secular, more united front, like the, how the PLO represented Instead, you have like an explicitly religious, explicitly more radical group like Hamas who plays better into the the stereotypes that Israel wants to perpetuate about Palestinians and Arabs. Of course, ends up backfiring on them when Hamas ends up getting being more serious than they thought, culminating in something like the attack on October 7th. Right. You think about the timing of... Hamas taking power 2006. I mean, that's the height of war in Iraq, war in Afghanistan, general war on terror. Israel has this vested interest in framing its conflict with Palestine in the same terms 
as the United States frames its conflict with Iraq and or separatist groups in Iraq and Afghanistan as this is a fight against terrorism. This is for securing the, the freedom and liberty of the Western world, blah, blah, blah. When the Palestinian example, yes, of course, Hamas is organization with Islamic beliefs, but it's also a political organization. And a lot of motives of Palestinians are more based in politics and history than they are in religion. But if... In 2016, our beloved President Obama and his Secretary of State, John Kerry, set the parameter for Israeli-Palestinian peace that Israel has to be recognized as a state for Jewish people explicitly. Really odd that our country, founded on principles of religious liberty and escaping religious persecution, would uh, take a stance like that. And then a few years later, Trump moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Right. If you took all the names off of it, somewhat, you know, and asked your random person off the street, they'd probably say, oh yeah, that sounds like a Trump policy. Nope. When it comes to Israel and Palestine, most didn't Pretty much every administration has remained the same in terms of continuing to support an apartheid state in Israel. Obama, Trump, Biden, however far back you want to go until 1948, it's all been the same, more or less. Yeah. And of course, we condemn the October 7th attack by Hamas against Israeli civilians. It, it, it feels silly that people who speak up about the rights of Palestinians need to make clear that they're not condoning a massive attack on civilians. But let's just be clear that we're not condoning that. But we need to be able to have these conversations and decouple these things to say, yes, there was this awful terrorist attack. But that doesn't give carte blanche to the regime that's been basically stoking this attack for decades to retaliate with what is looking more and more like an absolute genocide against mostly children. Any final thoughts from either of you guys? You know, I'll I'll just say like going, going back to, the, the conversation about borders is that, you know, one of the only things that gives borders their um, power is time. Um, you know, if you, if you set a border with whatever power you have to set it, um, you know, time is necessary for that, that border to settle in and for others to, to recognize it as kind of this thing that's always existed. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're seeing now that, you know, this has been a project, you know, a hundred years plus in the making, as Rashid Khalidi writes in his in his book, The Hundred Years of War in Palestine. But that's a, a pretty young project for, for border building. And so I think what we have now, you know, obviously as, as spectators, is witnessing the active building uh, and solidifying of borders and i think that's inspiring in some way you know it gives us even as spectators the agency to intervene uh, and not make this a moment where 100 200 300 years in the future these borders that were 
forged with so much blood and injustice are just matters of fact that everyone acts like they always existed and they deserve to exist and, and persist for, for all of eternity. But I think we have an opportunity now to really uh, kind of resist this project of etching these borders in stone and etching this genocide and this, this ethnic cleansing in stone. Well said, well said. Should we listen to some tunes? Yeah, let's jump into the music. Again, this is not, not just about mm-hmm. the borders themselves, but the people who live behind them. صباح الخير يا ولاد عمومنا تفضلوا شرفونا شو بتحب مضيفهم دم عربي ولا دموع من عيوننا بعتقد هيك تأملوا نستقبل من هيك تعقدوا لما تدركموا على غلطتن من هيك لبسنا الكوفيه البيضة والسودة صاروا كلاب الزمان يلبسوها كموضة مهما تفننوا فيها مهما غيروا بلونة كوفية عربية Okay so that was a part of a song by Shadia Mansour who's a British Palestinian female rapper a song called al kufiya arabia which is about the kufiya the uh, traditional scarf that many palestinians wear this song is dope and it also includes a verse from an american rapper from the group dead prez called m1 let me see if i can find this verse Meanwhile, that's M1 in Arabic. I'm pro-Palestinian. Does that make me a terrorist? You can catch me in Gaza, in Haifa or Ramallah, but I'm still just Mutulu Olubala. So when I rep with Shaja, we rhyme with our middle fingers up to the Zionists because we don't give a fuck. It's justice. So tie that thing around your head and ride. Wave it in the air and let me know what side you want. Uhuru. Yeah. The Kofir is Arab. We ride with our middle fingers up to the Zionists. That's pretty good. Yeah, Dead Press got it. Good stuff. Yeah, Shadia Mansour is known as the first lady of Arabic hip hop, a British Palestinian rapper who performs in Arabic and English. Lots of music revolving around Middle Eastern politics. The most well-known Palestinian hip-hop group is DAM, D-A-M, all caps. You should look this group up. These guys are dope. They're crazy. It's a trio of Palestinian rappers founded in 1999. And they rap in a number of different languages, mostly Arabic. But they have some stuff in English and and even Hebrew. And they really kind of start out the Palestinian hip-hop tradition being highly political, conscious rap, highly critical of... Israel and of Israel-Arab relations, it's really good stuff. And even, there's, so there's a documentary about Palestinian hip-hop. You can get it on Vimeo. It's called Slingshot Hip-Hop. It came out in 2008. It's all about Palestinian rappers. And I didn't get to watch the whole thing, but the start of it is with this group Dom being interviewed by Chuck D. Huh. And they're just praising Chuck D as a hero, one of the first super political conscious rappers. Uh, that awesome. really, you know, if you're in Palestine, seeing Chuck D do that in the U.S., say we need some of that here. Right, that's one of the many examples of how hip hop inspires around the world. So I wanted to highlight Dom 
Here, we get, let's listen to a song from these guys. The song is called Dedication. of those guys they've been putting out records for a long time now most of which i can't understand because it's in arabic but you know there's a a stray reference to american pop culture in there that comes through and some of their videos i mean the videos are always very cool too i've I've watched a couple Mm -hmm. and they have really cool visuals and they also sometimes come with subtitles so you know what they're saying yeah for those of us who don't speak arabic so shout out for sure to DAM. I I think uh, Dem Arab MCs. I think is what it stands for. Oh, D- DAM stands for Dem Arab MCs. I love that. I think so. I love that one of the letters in the acronym is also referring to an acronym. <laughs> Dem Arab MCs. Da Arab MCs. Oh, okay, Da Arab MCs. Yeah. That also means enduring or everlasting in Arabic. And while I don't speak Arabic, you can hear a lot of like good rhymes and wordplay in the their lyrics and a lot of these other lyrics I listen to. And I just I don't know if every language would be so conducive to rhyming, uh, but they do a great job. Yeah, I think it's definitely like when you have listened to enough hip hop, you can also kind of recognize flow even if it's in mm-hmm. another language. Right. So you can tell when somebody's like really on the, you know, flowing on the beat. And you know it when that. you see it. Yeah, exactly. And you can hear the rhyme pattern, even if you don't necessarily know what they're saying. So who else do we want to talk about? Well, there's, um, there's the little kid. There's, uh, little, yeah, MC Abdul. I love MC Abdul. The first time I heard of, this kid, I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw, I think Talib Kweli had actually reposted a video of MC Abdul oh, shit. Um, rapping to the beat from Respiration. Oh. And he's like rapping about life in Gaza. And he's this just 11 year old kid with, you know, big vocabulary, a lot to say. And a lot of reflections on growing up as a kid in, you know, occupied Gaza. The kid has words beyond his years. Mm-hmm. Um, in in English, him. too. He speaks like perfect mm-hmm. English. Mm-hmm. And he re-raps in English. Raps in English. It's so fitting that this country that's like largely children has this dope iconic rapper who's like waving the flag for the people who is a literal child. I mean, like we've seen young rappers in the U S this kid is small, but he's really powerful. So I have one of the songs of his that I, I like here called can I live? Of course, a reference to uh, Jay-Z. Shanti can't leave Gaza, but that hasn't kept the 11 year old's talent from spitting lyrics. I'm MC Abdul, and my message talks about peace, so I want to spread the peace all over the world. We want to be free. Can I live? Can I live? Can I live? 
Can I live? Can I live? Yeah. Can I live? Can I live? I'm just a young guy's a kid. Can I live? Can I live? Can we live? Can we live? Yeah. Can I live? Can I live? I'm just trying to do it big, yeah Young as a kid and I came with the cold flow Rap all day and my friends think I'm local See me outside and he wanna take my photo Yeah, I'm in the photo Spinning like a yo-yo Yeah, I got plans to grow up my I love this so look, right? I mean, he's just Not only is he just like a fantastic rapper But you can just feel the, emo like the emotion charging through him um, And it, for someone so young to be kind of like so connected to uh hip-hop like history and tradition uh all the greats and the ogs if you like you know look through his his uh his music he's, he's rapping over just iconic instrumentals um it's just you know it's an inspiring little guy yeah good for him i think i heard that he's actually been able to relocate to the u.s so that he isn't currently in the path of the, you know, Israeli siege on Gaza, thankfully. But it's still, I can only imagine the the, yeah. the trauma he's been through and the strength that it must take to still be like this eleven-year-old kid to be on that platform now. Uh, yeah, he's an icon. He should get a Nobel Peace Prize, like, uh, like Malala. He's he's the next Malala. He's the rapping Malala. <laughs> Hip hop's Malala. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anybody that's claimed that title yet. So. Yeah, right. Who's coming for the crown? <laughs> should we talk about? DJ Khaled. DJ Khaled. DJ Khaled. We the best music. Yeah, so what's going on with DJ Khaled? Who is prob actually the most well known and well paid Palestinian rapper. Wow. Or like has he Hype man. celebrity? Yeah. One of the most well known Palestinian celebrities and also one of the quietest when it comes to this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um People have been asking pub on you know pretty publicly where is uh, Khaled where are his words where what is his take given that he is a Palestinian with such a major platform and the man has been has said squat he's has been very silent on the whole issue yeah and especially when you see other. Palestinian celebrities like Gigi and Bella Hadid, after some time, you know, start to to get their solidarity together. I think you know, as as time passes, um, you know, the silence of one of the most prominent Palestinian celebrities keeps getting louder and louder. It's it's funny to think anyone expected much uh, from DJ Khaled <laughs> yeah, right. outside of his music Honestly. in the first place, but. You know, when it comes to genocide, it's 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 understandable to expect the bare minimum of opposition to a genocide from your fellow human being. 
right? I feel I feel both ways. I'm like, come on, DJ Khaled, say something, speak up, and I'm like. Why the fuck are we waiting to hear what DJ Khaled has to say about this? Where is Jah? And of course, of course, it brings up the classic Dave Chappelle bit. Stop worshiping celebrities so much. Just don't listen, don't pay attention. I remember right around September 11th, uh, Ja Rule was on MTV. That's what they said. They said, we got Ja Rule on the phone. Let's see what Ja's thoughts are on this tragedy. Who gives a fuck what Ja Rule thinks at a time like this, nigga? This is ridiculous. I don't want to dance, I'm scared to death. I want some answers that Ja Rule might not have right now. You think when bad shit happens to me, I'll be in the crib like, oh my God, this is terrible. Could somebody please find Ja Rule, get hold of this motherfucker so I can make sense of all this. Where is Ja? <laughs> But then just to, to tie it full circle, and I have to think that there's a reporter out there with just a good, ironic sense of humor, because Ja Rule is asked about DJ Khaled remaining silent about Palestine. <laughs> and, like, there is a hotnewhiphop.com article, Ja Rule defends... DJ Khaled and Drake. Oh, because Drake is also dragged into this as like one of the most uh, famous or high paid Jewish celebrities in the world, not speaking up on this issue, but DJ Khaled. And then for, because they can't get it from Khaled or Drake, they turn to Ja Rule and say, what do you, what's your take on these guys? (laughs) Silence. And Ja Rule, Ja Rule is like, he describes how he doesn't think anybody should feel obligated to do anything despite expectations of fans. It's a tough thing. Many people may not feel as educated as necessary to speak on serious topics. Yeah. Ja Rule knows because you know, the council on foreign relations is going to ask Ja Rule what's he, what he thinks about, you know, the crisis in Yemen. <laughs> Because Rule says, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm educated enough to talk about that. <laughs> it does make you question, like, when did we get to the point where it was like, I don't want to hear anybody's opinions who actually matter in this <laughs> issue on, like, a given issue. I want to hear what Drake and DJ Khaled have to say. <laughs> I mean, I get it because these people have big followings. I get like, reminds me of Taylor Swift. Like people call on Taylor Swift to be more vocal about political stuff because people worship Taylor Swift. But uh, still, I I just feel like I don't know many people in my life who'd be very influenced by DJ Khaled's take on this political issue. Prove me wrong. Yeah. Like, like who is this going to convince? Like, the, the Israeli government is going to hear DJ Khaled comes out in support of Palestinian liberation, and they're like, oh, well, mm-hmm. pack it up. I think, I think DJ Khaled should do nothing less than run in the next Palestinian election. I think he needs to dive fully in. <laughs> yeah, go from zero to 100. The only the only person I think DJ Khaled can convince to do anything is Fat Joe. <laughs> but the funny thing is, the only the funny thing is, I don't know why or how, but Fat Joe is commenting 
on like all of MC Abdul's videos on Instagram. Oh, nice! Like keep it up, like go for it. Okay. So he's more of a more of a supporter okay. in solidarity than than uh, than DJ Khaled. Is. So what, we, <laughs> what you're saying is that we don't need terrorism to free Palestine. We need terror squad to, to free, free Palestine. <laughs> <laughs> Send them in. Terror Squad. There was one other group that I forgot to mention. Uh, this group called Refugees of Rap. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're called Refugees of Rap. We got to talk about them on Fear of a Border Planet. This is a duo who met at a Palestinian refugee camp in Syria uh, in 2007 and started rapping. I think they live in France now. But they're sweet, and I'll throw one of their songs yeah. on here too. Yeah. Oh. Yo. أيام الغرب بحس كتير أن صعبة شياطين وإدمان مثل اللعبة أنا عايش بأوهام حياتي كذب بحاول أعيش بالإيمان وقت الموت تحت اللعبة. منا هون موجود شايف كل شي مفروض كل شي تخطط من قبل ونحن منحكي الصمود شايف كل شي بعرف كل شي بنفس الوقت أعمى مربط بالسلاسي كنو غنم بعيد الأطحى الموت Did you have some, some greatest bars to spit, yeah. Nelson? For sure. I'll, I'll give uh, some words from some of our Palestinian hip-hop representation. One of the other groups that we were going to mention too were the Hammer Bros. They've got this joint Free Palestine. Where one I feel like is... we should be transparent that we don't know anything about the Hammer Bros, and yes. even whether they're Palestinian, but they have a really good song called Free Palestine. I think they are Palestinian because they come up um, okay, good. in the in those searches when I, when I was looking researching Palestinian hip-hop, their name came up okay, a good. few times. They left an offer on the table giving P.O. 10% of the land to which they are attached, but still there was a catch. Claim you were never there and will never come back. Absurd like a bird claiming that it never hatched. We play the role of eggs if chronologies in question. Why not squeeze us in a batch or break us up without protection? They try to make us scramble, want to put us over easy. Aim to poach us, turn the Philistines into endangered species. I, 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 a lot of good stuff. Yeah. I enjoyed the that. whole scrambling eggs metaphor. Yeah, he, he went on an extended kind of egg metaphor on that one that I was enjoying. Just um, mm-hmm. some real nice wordplay from Free Palestine, the, the song from the Hammer Bros. MC Abdul, of course, speaking on this one track, uh, shouting at the wall in um, really mm-hmm. raw, kind of giving some real raw emotions and, you know. I think it speaks to the power of uh, the young man's words when you hear something like, huddled in the corner of my room, trying to protect my little brother as the building shakes like it's possessed, but nothing stronger than the will to be oppressed. I bomb back with my lyrics and rhymes, living in the times, trying to break the Palestinian minds. Mm-hmm. That, that one was really profound for me as well. And then... Our OG Palestinian hip hop group Dom Dom the Arab Dem MC. Arab MCs. MCs. Uh, I their track Milliardat. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that decently. It was one of the ones that really stuck out to me. The t- the the video for it is crazy and really good, really well produced. 
And it's in Arabic, of course, so the English translation doesn't rhyme, but when it sounds comes mm-hmm. out in Arabic, it sounds really good. And it's still, you know, the words here are really great, uh, such as, no prophet is respected among his people. You want to resist, you'll be sentenced. You'll be welcomed with tomatoes, not a Grammy. I'm peaceful like the Sufi and the Buddhist, but I'm not a masochist. They killed 101 month. Fuck yoga. I will fight for my rights. <laughs> Imagine I have an army and authority. Imagine my face on my money bills. A traditional outfit made by myself and not by Gucci. We banned Nawal. We screened Wonder Woman. You see the hypocrisy? <laughs> I just like fuck yoga as a translation in there. <laughs> like yeah, I'm peaceful. Like I'm a Buddhist, but you keep bombing us. Fuck yoga. <laughs> but I'm glad I'm glad you pulled some translations of some actual Arabic lyrics because that's something I meant to yeah. do. Uh, and, and it's just, yeah, and it's funny because it rhymes in Arabic and it sounds re- mm-hmm. the flow is really nice in Arabic. It sounds a little weird weirder in English, but the words are still very powerful. This goes to show hip-hop, universal language. Universal language. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, there's so much good stuff out there, and I encourage anyone who's a hip-hop fan to do your own research, do your own digging uh, about hip-hop artists from Palestine and listen to them and promote them, especially now. If you want to just do a quick search on your phones for some of these artists that we named, look up DAM, Dom, look up MC Abdul, look up Refugees of Rap, look up Shadia Mansour, that's S-H-A-D-I-A-M-A-N-S-O-U-R. You know, we know the history of hip hop and we know it's born out of struggle and oppression. And of course, there's hip hop in Palestine. Of course there is. Ugh, December 2023, this conflict looks like it's not even ending anytime soon. Hopefully you're listening to this in a better time, but... You know, we just got to keep raising our voices, say, this is not okay. We can't be complicit with this genocide. Yeah. As a crew, very proudly and very openly stand with Palestine, the liberation mm-hmm. of uh, a people who have been subject to apartheid and oppression for over 75 years. And, you know, people need to remember this didn't happen out of the blue, you know. Uh, there's a lot of history here. You know, I, I, when mainstream media talks about the October 7th attacks, it's like, oh, completely unprovoked. Palestine just showed up and, you know, these, all these Hamas just right. showed up and started killing people. We don't know why they're doing this. We know why. Because. Right. The whole, yeah. there was an, there was a ceasefire on October 6th. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, Jesus sure. Christ. Yeah. We, yeah. Okay. Of course people are going to resist. It's not always pretty, and October 7th, of course, was awful, but one attack does not justify a genocide, especially against folks who are completely defensive. Like, this is one of the most vulnerable... Totally defenseless. Yeah, this is one of the most vulnerable populations in the world, and the 
subject complete decimation. And their inability to leave, I think, is what really hits different, especially from the perspective of refugee rights here in the U.S. It's like people who do this kind of work in the U.S., we see people who have been forced from their homelands by violence and, and bloodshed, what have you, and it's horrible. But they were able to leave their homelands. Borders are being used to pen people in who are being actively shelled and murdered. It's just, it's really harrowing. Where are they to go? So abolish borders, free Palestine. Continue to fight, continue to resist. You know, we will boycott, divest, sanction. We will, you know, march in the streets. We will organize, strategize, and resist for our own communities and for communities in Palestine until we're all free. This has been Nelson the Mayan. This is Ramos, a.k.a. Mr. Doing Too Much. We can bleep out the name at the end to protect me from legal liability. (laughs) (laughs) And this is Carrie. Also feel like I'm doing too much sometimes, but it's easy with you guys. Sending you much love. Talk to you in the new year. And to our listeners, all six of them, we love you to Mm -hmm. death. Maybe if you stick with us, We'll send you some freebies. I'm thinking about getting some stickers yeah, printed. Well, that would be fun. Do like some uh, Bureau of Border Planet well, stickers. Like uh, as long as we're not also sued for uh, or sent to cease <laughs> and desist because our logo. T- yeah, it might be. It might be over for us. I'm gonna just jeopardize this, this whole thing. Oh, this uh, our whole podcast venture is just you know trampling on yeah. copyright. But that's what hip hop. Like early days of hip hop. Yeah, love it. Keeping yeah. in the grand tradition. That's right. That's right. Over and out. Peace. Fear of a Border Planet is a podcast written, produced, and edited by the hosts, Nelson, Ramos, and Carrie. Please subscribe to Fear of a Border Planet on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you like the show, please leave us a rating or a review. Tell your friends to search for Fear of a Border Planet wherever they get their podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Border Planet Pod or visit our website at borderplanetpod.wordpress.com. Fear of a Border Planet does not own the rights to any music featured here. If you're a studio bigwig who does own the rights, and you believe our inclusion of the music is not fair use, please send us a politely worded cease and desist. The views expressed in this pod are solely those of the hosts and our agreeable listeners, not of our employers or the feds. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Catch you later. I'm